Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So as you know, uh, we met at Udacity, and I actually started taking the uh, machine learning nano degree, and I unfortunately ended up being a dropout. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about a different kind of dropout. Neural net dropout. I have no idea what that is, but I'm about to learn. You are listening to Linear Digressions. I feel so privileged that even though I did drop out of that program and I didn't actually pursue machine learning or any of uh, any of this stuff uh, on a professional level, I get to talk to you every week. Oh, well, I mean, number one, pleasure's all mine. Uh, number two, yeah, pleasure's all mine. <laughs> so this week... <laughs> I think I'm, uh, I'm the luckiest yeah. linear digressions listener, I think. <laughs> uh, oh, stop. So, yeah, this week we're going to talk about dropout. Um, this is a listener suggestion. So thank you to Josh Espinoza for suggesting this. And dropout is a pretty famous way. It comes to us from a paper, uh, the subtitle of which is A Simple Way to Prevent Neural Nets from Overfitting. So okay. that tells you kind of at a very high level what the goal is here, which is preventing neural nets from overfitting. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop quiz myself. Hey, Ben, what's overfitting? And we'll see if I get this right. Okay. When you're training a neural network, you give it a bunch of data, and uh, you're hoping that it's going to find the patterns in the data set that are also in, say, the, the world's data set, if you will. You obviously have a very small, like if you're, if you're training an image classifier, you have a small number of the images that this neural network could possibly see. Um, and so you want, from your data set, you want to pull out the, the qualities that you're looking for that are actually the qualities that are present in all of the different possible images of, say, dogs or whatever. But what can happen, uh, oh, what's the example? The, we gave, you gave an example in a previous episode where I think it was pictures of tanks or something like that, where uh, uh, they were training the, the neural network to pull out, to, to be able to detect whether there were tanks in the image. But what it ended up doing is it ended up finding all of the instances where it was daytime. Uh, and because typically you take pictures of tanks during the day as opposed to during the nighttime. And that would be an example of overfitting because you are fitting more to the intricacy, more to the details of your data set than you are uh, to the thing that your data set is supposed to be representing. Uh, yeah, yeah. A shorter way of saying that is that an overfit model is one in which uh, it has much, much better performance on the training data than on any testing data or data that you would be applying it to in the real world, which is another a, way of saying, you know, yeah. same thing. <laughs> That's a much more concise way of putting it. <laughs> um, yeah. And so this is a particular danger for neural networks, because one of the things that very often happens with overfitting is, is when you have uh, very complex models. So if you have a lot of different ways that your model is flexible, then that makes it more prone to overfitting. Whereas if it's a little bit more structured, a little, little bit more rigid, then it's a little bit harder for it to overfit. Is that kind of a like the more variables there are, the more kind of local permutations there can be within your specific things that are specific to your data set? Yeah, and so for neural nets, this can be a particular problem because neural nets are kind of famous for their flexibility. And oh. moreover, it's kind of hard sometimes to, there's a lot of like tuning that you have to do very often to train them. So very often you're iterating on your model and you're training many different versions of your model. And that's another case in which 
it's very easy to end up with an overfit model. Um, right, and so I the see. question, yeah, the question here is like, how do we prevent what's it, what's a general purpose way of like protecting against this for neural nets? And so it a very, seems like an impossible problem. Yeah. I mean, so the simplest way to do it, if you want to generally protect against overfitting neural nets is that you would have like maybe a very large number of different neural nets that you would train and then like combine them together or somehow ensemble them or something. Um, so hopefully, mm. even if one of them is overfit, uh, then hopefully the other ones will protect you. But Or if they're very... overfit, both of them in different ways, then they'll kind of cancel each other out. Oh, uh, that's possible. Although usually there's... That. Yeah, um, that's probably less likely, although it could happen. Um, but the bigger problem is it's just really expensive to do that. Um, so each one of these neural nets is pretty expensive to build. And so you don't want to be in the business of having to build a thousand neural nets uh, just to get one answer. So the simplest right. thing is not what we want to do. So there's also, mm -hmm. I, I remember also another way of tackling this problem was to say, all right, I've got a data set with like a hundred thousand things in it and I'll set aside 20,000 of them and I'll train on my 80,000 uh, thing data set. And then, uh, Maybe I'll overfit to that. Maybe I won't, but I can tell whether I've overfit by then running it on the on the extra twenty thousand that I've set aside, which I'm not using to train my um, my model. But of course, the downside is the more times you check, the more you're you're like liable to accidentally overfit to that twenty thousand as well. Yeah. So cross validation can protect you a little bit here, but. Um, yeah. yeah, it it's not like foolproof, and it's still uh, you can still end up with an overfit model. Before we talk about dropout, let me just very quickly refresh the structure of a neural net here. Right. Um, imagine, let's say, like it's a simple like few layer convolutional neural net. So let's say what you're doing is you're putting in pictures in one end, and at the other end, you want it to say, "Is this a dog or a cat?" Super simple problem. So what a neural net will do, roughly in this situation is you imagine taking your picture and let's say it's 100 pixels wide and 100 pixels tall, so that's 10,000 pixels total. And each one of those pixels is gonna be one of the input features that go into your neural net. So you have 10,000 different input features. And so imagine like a row of, or kind of like a column and it's got like 10,000 little dots on it, uh, all like lined up vertically. And each one of those dots is like where you put in one of the pixels. And okay. now there's going to be a second layer of dots to the right of that first layer. And maybe there's more of them. Maybe there's less of them. Let's say that instead of there being 10,000, let's say there's less. Let's say there's like 500. Now you have all these connections that you draw between your first row of little dots and your second row of little dots. And so you don't necessarily have to have all, all of the first row connected to all of the second row, but you have a lot of them connected. And those are some of those connections are when you're fitting a neural net, you're trying to figure out what the weights on those connections are so that then when you have the inputs, they are multiplied by those connection weights. They go through the second layer. Uh, then there's maybe a third layer that's got some other number of little dots next to it. And so depending on how many layers you have, it might be like a deep neural net. And at the end, there's going to be, in this case, one final output layer and it's going to be a zero for a one and or, excuse me a zero for a dog or a one for a cat and so there's kind of this like connected dot lattice work almost that, that you can envision mm. in your head 
if you've mm-hmm. ever studied machine learning before, you've probably seen like a picture that kind of represents this. So yeah, I've seen visualizations of this before. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of dropout is that uh, we say that each one of those little dots within your grid there is a, we call them units. Dropout is where you just randomly start getting rid of units. Whoa. Yeah. Wait, that intuitively it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why would you why would you throw away some of these connections or yes. these units? And that is exactly the question you should be asking. I'm looking at my notes right now, and and the next line in my notes is, how can removing information be helpful? Because yes, <laughs> this is pretty counterintuitive, right? Um, yeah. And here's here's the motivation: is it's the general idea that it is a good quality for a model to be robust in the face of a bit of chaos. And I think that's like mm. maybe actually something that's like true of life <laughs> um, is that if you can like hold up well, even when like things are a little bit chaotic, that actually is a very good sign. Um, right. This reminded me of something else that I once heard of. Have you ever heard of Chaos Monkey? Yes, I have. Um, Gosh, let me see. I'm racking my memory. Is that, was that Netflix infrastructure? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah it was Netflix infrastructure. And I think the, the idea was Chaos Monkey was this system, not an actual monkey, but the idea is Chaos Monkey is this system which just kind of like... Uh, roams about netflix's infrastructure and randomly pulls out wires yes. now in this case it's not actually wires it's like taking down services or systems or whatever and the idea is um in this contrived example you want or uh, let me rephrase that actually uh, this contrived example is trying to emulate real life like real life you've got a service which is supposed to give you let's say the the user's profile image and what if that goes out in one region in in one of your data centers or something like that like you can't just have you know a quarter of your users trying to hit that service to get the profile image and just the failure is what they get they just get a box right and so you need to build uh, chaos monkey is a way of testing whether you've successfully built um, your infrastructure so when things go out uh, or when you get uh, some some noise or some chaos or whatever, then your system can, can automatically respond accordingly. Yeah. So this feels like a little bit like Chaos Monkey, but for neural nets. Like they didn't draw this connection in the in the in the paper. That's just what it reminded me of. So it's the general idea that like yeah, introduce a little bit of chaos into your system, and if your system is still giving you good results out, then that's actually a really positive sign overall. That's really cool. So we've talked previously about taking your input data and introducing noise into your input data and passing it through uh, and and trying to build systems that can accommodate that noise. But we're not talking about noise on the input. We're talking about noise in the system itself. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so there's a lot of the paper is actually spent talking about the different different types of architectures of neural nets that they looked at and different ways that you can actually introduce the noise. So like a simple thing is you say that for each layer in your neural net, multiply that layer by a vector of probabilities. And those probabilities are like, what's the probability that any given like unit is going to be dropped. So it really is like pretty stochastic. Um, And so you'll get some layer out once you've done that multiplication that's been kind of thinned in a way that you couldn't really predict. And then you can basically like take that architecture and you do regular old 
forward and backward propagation with like a gradient descent type algorithm and you just kind of train it as you would any normal neural net. Uh, there are a couple of tricks that they have in there for actually getting it to work a little bit better. They're all, they're, they tend to be a little bit more like empirical. Uh, this is just what we found and it, it goes a little bit slower to train the neural net. But the, the ultimate payoff is that, yeah, it tends to be more robust against overfitting. They tried on a bunch of different data sets and kind of validated that. And so, you're, you're hinting a little bit at what I was going to ask, which is how well does this actually work? Oh, yeah. So it seems to work pretty well. Um, the paper is not super current uh, or super recent at this point. It's been around for a few years. But the reason that we're talking about it is it's like one of these things that has withstood the test of time a little bit. Dropout is a pretty mm. common thing that you would do with like large complex neural network architectures. I think there's also, before we leave the the intuition too far behind about like why this works, there's another way to think about why this works, which is that one of the things that, like a, a neural network is kind of like a team in the sense that all the units are trying to work together to like come up with an answer. And one of the things that can happen if you don't have something like dropout is that some of the neurons can end up making big mistakes and then other neurons end up making big mistakes in the opposite direction and they kind of cancel each other out and you end up getting like the right answer out so it looks like you know you're getting like kind of training rewards for for that architecture but hmm. uh it's very like imbalanced you have this <laughs> complex co-adaptation where there's just these like big effects that are pulling the neural net in different directions and so what dropout does is it basically makes it a lot harder for neurons to, or for the, the hidden units to compensate for one another. Uh, so in the teamwork analogy, it's like, imagine you're trying to build a really good team or they, they actually have a good example. Uh, it was like, let's say you're trying to pull off a, uh, a conspiracy, right? Uh -huh. That if you're trying to successfully execute a conspiracy, probably the best way to do it is you have like, a smaller number of people who are generally competent than having like a large team and each member of the team has like one thing that they're really good at and they're like pretty bad at everything else where even in, in that scenario maybe if you have the entire team together like your conspiracy will still work but the way that it's probably more likely to work is if you just have like the smaller number but they're each one of them is like more better at like a, a larger number of things if that makes sense yeah uh, they're better at adapting like, i guess yeah like weird imbalances in your team if if things start to like uh go awry or anything um so that's another like intuition i think for for why this stuff works because as you said when we first started talking about it it's it's quite unintuitive when you first look at it like you're losing information and how could that make things better uh, but thinking about it, probing it a little bit more, it starts to become mm. a little bit less crazy. Yeah, it definitely makes a lot more. Uh, that actually really helps a lot um, for making it intuitively make sense, where you're not talking about uh, units, which are, uh, I don't know, whatever. You're talking about humans, and like we all have experience with humans and with uh, the resiliency and the, the problem-solving nature of humans because we all are humans, right? And so if you've got a bunch of humans that are all working together and one of them just doesn't do their job. Uh, well, I mean, everybody's everybody's dealt with that in elementary school uh, or in middle school where you have the group project and one person just doesn't pull their weight. Like, the project gets done, ultimately. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but like it's not really the team that you want to be on, right? You want to be on the team. Like I, <laughs> for my money, anyway, I would rather be on a team that has like, say it's a four person team. I'd rather have like three really solid, dependable, right. and not crazy, like not dramatic other three people than three people who are all like brilliant but difficult. And I think of uh-huh. of a very high weight uh, units in neural networks as being kind of brilliant but difficult. And oh, it's interesting. Like, you know, maybe they're balancing each other out. Um, but it makes the entire thing a little bit more unstable. Uh, right. And that's, that's you know, overfitting is then what can happen as a result of that. Interesting. So if you, if you apply this method in the wrong way, and you, in, in more of an unstable way, it can actually cause overfitting that you might not have otherwise. Oh, well, I think if you did drop out, if you did drop out after you trained the neural net, for example, then... Well, that wouldn't be overfitting. That would just be a really bad model. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you want to take, you want to take the fact that you're doing dropout into account sort of in the architecture of the model that you're building. For Mm. example, if you have something like... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, like certain probability, like let's say that you have this vector of probabilities about where you're going to be dropping neurons. Let's say there's a 25% chance of any given neuron getting dropped, then... Once you think about the architecture that you want your out, your model to actually have, you want to like boost the number of ner- uh, hidden units in that layer by twenty five percent. Things like this. Got it. I see. So so basically, you don't you can't just take a model and apply dropout to it and expect everything to magically be better. It's something that you kind of have to to work with. Yeah, you you probably want to start with the idea that you're going to use dropout. I mean, you don't have to start your entire analysis with that assumption as something you can try midway in, but it's going to totally change the behavior of your model. So, yeah, expect to expect to take some extra steps to like take in, that into account. And we'll have a link to the paper on lineardigressions.com as always, and one of the things that's kind of nice about this paper is that it is fairly practical in this sense and they try to give some heuristics based on the studies that they did about what are some of the things that seem to help the most and what are you know approximate like uh, reasonable guesses for some of these adjustments you have to make that kind of stuff linear digressions is a creative commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like just tell them we said hi To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.